Men, please be seated. As you're doing so, take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 3. As Pastor Kevin mentioned, we will continue our sermon series this morning through the book of Exodus, our text this morning, Exodus chapter 3. I will read Exodus chapter 3 in its entirety. And then I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and if you agree with me, please say, thanks be to God. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations." Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey." And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. 
And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Father, we believe that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We believe that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we ask now, Father, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. On your way into church this morning, you may have noticed a big white Ford Transit out in the parking lot. For those who don't know, that is our family vehicle. No, that is not the church van. That's just the Logan house. We have six children, so we require a very specific kind of transportation. We bought that van in uh, 2018, um, and before that, I never like noticed vans like that on the road. And since we bought ours, I feel like I see them everywhere. Have you ever experienced that? Like you buy a car and then all you see is that kind of car all over the road. I'm assuming before 2018, those vans were on the road. Uh, I guess I can't say for sure. But um, I know that since we bought ours, my, there's a sense in which my eyes have been opened to uh, see them. I didn't think about them before, but then we bought one, and then I thought about it, and now I, I feel like I see them everywhere. I notice them everywhere. Well, in a very similar way, we want to train our eyes to see Christ in all the Scriptures. The preaching of Jesus and the apostles, uh, the writing of the New Testament, these things reveal to us that as Christians— We are supposed to read all Scripture with a Christ-centered hermeneutic, that we should read and interpret the Old Testament the way that Jesus and the apostles read and interpreted the Old Testament. Last week, in Exodus chapter 2, Pastor Kevin encouraged us to have a sanctified spiritual imagination as we read the Scriptures. Um. Some might argue that with that kind of language, that what we're doing is we're forcing Jesus into an Old Testament passage that really isn't about Jesus. But on the contrary, we know that Jesus and the apostles taught that every passage of the Old Testament has always been about Jesus. The Holy Spirit inspired the Old Testament with the intention of leading us to Jesus. So as we look at Exodus chapter 3 this morning, there's no way that we could plumb the depths of everything that this narrative reveals. And so here's what we're going to do is we're going to move through the text, uh, noting elements of importance as we always do, but primarily we're going to be looking at clear signs that are pointing us to Christ. And I uh, I believe as, as I've studied this week that there are at least four. So we will look at these four clear signs that are pointing us to Jesus. This passage, like every passage in the Old Testament, is ripe with types, with shadows, with signs that are pointing us, that are paving the way for Jesus Christ. There's an old Switchfoot song that says, the shadow proves the sunshine. And so this morning, let's look at the shadows in Exodus chapter 3 with the goal of feeling the sun shine on our faces. 
First thing we noticed in this text is what this text assumes and does not explicitly say. From the end of Exodus chapter 2 to the beginning of Exodus chapter 3, 40 years have passed. Exodus chapter 3 now moves us 40 years ahead in Moses' life. So again, Pastor Kevin mentioned last week, or he noted that that Moses' life can really be divided into three spans, spans of time. From from birth to 40 years old, uh, Moses is the prince of Egypt. From the age 40 to 80, he is the shepherd of Midian. And from 80 to 120, he is the leader of Israel. Our text this week and next week, Exodus 3 and Exodus 4, transition Moses from the shepherd of his father-in-law's flock to the shepherd of God's flock. For 40 years, Moses quietly shepherded his father-in-law's sheep in obscurity. One commentator notes of God's preparation of Moses in this time. That God in his providence had Moses shepherd sheep for 40 years so that Moses could learn how to care after someone else's sheep before he learned to care after God's sheep. Yahweh did the same thing with Joseph. He did the same thing with David. They were shepherds of sheep before they were called to shepherd God's sheep. And the theme of Leaders as shepherds spans the entire Old Testament and even into the New Testament. The prophets rebuked Israel's leaders because they were poor shepherds of God's people. All of these men, Moses included, are signs that are pointing us to the true shepherd, or as he calls himself, the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd who has come to lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus not only died for his sheep, but Jesus also lives for his sheep. He leads us. He feeds us. He disciplines us. He goes after us when we wander. And so first and foremost, the call of the gospel from Exodus 3 this morning is to call you to trust in Jesus. He is the good shepherd. This pattern of shepherd leadership continues into the new covenant as well. Because Jesus is the true shepherd, all elders of local churches are called to be under shepherds of God's church. Jesus Christ is the shepherd of Christ's community church. But the seven men that are called right now as elders of Christ's community church are under shepherds of this flock, under the authority of Jesus called to shepherd God's sheep. In 1 Peter chapter 5, listen to what Peter writes. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. May the elders of Christ Community Church shepherd God's flock well here for God's glory and for our good. Jesus is the true shepherd. But notice what happens next. The text tells us that the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the burning bush. I think there are two important things that we note in this scene about God. The first is about God's holiness. This fire is a picture of the holiness of God. God's holiness speaks to his distinctness or his otherness. God is the only creator. Everything else is creation. 
The fire here at the burning bush is self-sustaining. Moses doesn't have to keep throwing logs on the fire to keep it going. It is self-propelled. Our God is the only self-sufficient being in existence. Our God needs no one or nothing else to sustain him. We are not self-sufficient. God gives us every breath we take. To quote the great theologian, Sting, of the police, every breath you take, every move you make, God gives it to you. You don't give yourself breath. Don't be deceived into foolishly thinking that you have control over your life. In him we live and move and have our being. He sustains us. We are not self-sufficient, but God is truly self-sufficient. God needs no one. God needs nothing. Yahweh tells Moses to take his sandals off because Moses is standing on holy ground. What was the point of this ritual? Are Moses' sandals inherently dirty and his feet inherently clean? I don't think that's the point. Yahweh is telling Moses that to be in the presence of God, Moses must do what God says. This is non-negotiable. We see all throughout Scripture that God always initiates his relationship with humanity. There is never a time in Scripture where humans initiate their relationship with God. Every single time God initiates relationship with humanity. People never seek God. God always seeks people. Once God reveals himself and shows his grace to his people, he then requires obedience. So, you gotta, it's got to be in the right order, okay? The indicative always precedes the imperative, but, the, but then it's there, right? So God, in his grace, reveals himself to Moses. That's grace. God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to speak to Moses. God didn't have to reveal himself to Moses. In his grace, the Lord reveals himself to Moses, but grace is always followed by obedience, right? requirement. You, are, you experience God's grace, you're called to obey God. And so Moses here is commanded to obey Yahweh. Take your sandals off. You must, you must obey me. My word must rule this situation. The second thing we see about God here pertains to the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. So notice it says in verse 2, and the angel of Yahweh appeared to him Okay, but then in verse 4, it says, When Yahweh, or when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called out to him. So this character, for lack of a better term, the, the angel of the Lord, this person, this character is presented um, in many Old Testament narratives. You know, with Abraham, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with others, we see this person, this character. There's a couple things we want to note about the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. First is that there's a sense in which this angel or this messenger of Yahweh is distinct from Yahweh, right? Or else it would just say that Yahweh said this or God said this or the Lord. So there's a sense in which it's dis he's distinct. He's distinct from the Lord. The word angel is a little deceiving here because the Hebrew word that's translated angel is the word malach, which really, it really just means messenger. This is a, a messenger of God, a messenger of the Lord. So this person is distinct. He's distinct from Yahweh. He's a messenger of Yahweh. Yet, as you move through the pericope, the angel of the Lord becomes synonymous with the Lord, right? Like it says, the angel of the Lord appeared in verse 2, and then in verse 4 it says, and then God said. So it's almost like they're synonymous. 
So what's clear here is that Moses is speaking of an individual who is both distinct from God, but also synonymous with God. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John reveals to us who this character is. In John 1, when he he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, distinct, And the word was God, synonymous, distinct yet synonymous. This burning bush event is what theologians have often called a Christophany. It is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. In the fullness of time, the eternal Son of God would take on humanity in his incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. His name is Jesus Christ. But before that time, there were Old Testament occasions like this where we get a glimpse of the glory that is to come. Jesus is the one who is both distinct from God while being synonymous with God. He is the very word of God. And what he does is he commissions Moses here in Exodus 3 from the covenant to redemption. Okay, that's an important order. Moses is being commissioned from the covenant, and his commission is unto redemption. So the basis of Moses' redemptive commission is the covenant faithfulness of God. Three times in this passage... Right? How, many, how many verses is this? That's a little arbitrary, right? Because the verses came way later. But there's 22 verses in Exodus chapter 3. Three times in 22 verses, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses is being commissioned from the covenant. This is important. We, gotta, we always want to keep this in mind. As you read the Old Testament, God is not just doing random miracles. He's not just telling random stories. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God is fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. It's not about anything else. The point, the story, the reason why the Old Testament was written down, and of course the New Testament as well, is to tell you how the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that redemptive plan always is moving forward through the covenants. And so as God is preparing Moses for the next covenant, the covenant with Israel, the old covenant as we call it, he is reminding him that this is not arbitrary. This is coming from the covenant with Abraham. Three times he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses is commissioned here from the covenant. That is the occasion. That's the setting. There is no story of the Exodus or any Old Testament story for that matter apart from covenants. God only ever in the history of the world has dealt with humans through covenant. From Adam until even now, through the new covenant in Jesus, there has never been a human being who has ever had a relationship with God apart from covenant. Moses is commissioned from the covenant, and he is commissioned to redemption. Yahweh says that he has seen the suffering of his people and that he will deliver them. For the last two weeks, we have noted that the exodus was a providential historical event ordained by God to point us forward to the redemption that is coming in Jesus Christ. That is the main point of the Exodus narrative. Every person who has ever lived from Genesis 3 forward is enslaved to his or her sin. Psalm 51.5 says we are conceived in sin. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Andrew Peterson paints an apt picture 
of this reality in his song entitled Deliver Us from the album Behold the Lamb of God. This is what he says, this is how he writes it. He says, Our enemy, our captor, is no pharaoh on the Nile. Our toil is neither mud nor brick nor sand. Our ankles, they bear no calluses from chains, yet, Lord, we're bound. Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. Deliver us, deliver us, O Yahweh, hear our cry, and gather us beneath your wings tonight. Our sins, they are more numerous than all the lambs we slay. These shackles, they were made with our own hands. Our toil is our atonement, and our freedom yours to give. So Yahweh, break this silence if you can. We are spiritual captives who need redemption. And it is only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can experience redemption from the slave market of sin. We must trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Jesus lived without sin, earning our righteousness before God, the one true and holy God. Jesus died as our substitute, bearing God's wrath for sin. Jesus resurrected, proving that God had accepted his life and death. And now everyone who repents and believes in Jesus will be redeemed. This is the ultimate meaning of the Exodus. Now, what's important is that the Exodus is never less than that, ever. That's the ultimate meaning. But it certainly is more than that. Something else that we see here is that God hates the unjust oppression of his people. God says he has seen the affliction of his people. He has heard their cry. He knows their suffering. Some people you might hear argue that scripture condones slavery. That could not be further from the truth. The Bible addresses slavery as an issue of human sin. The Exodus reveals that God hates the unjust oppression of his people. 1 Timothy 1.10 says that slavery is contrary to the gospel. Revelation 18 says that when the great Babylon falls, there will be no more slavery in the new heavens and the new earth. Slavery and oppression are offensive to God because they are the dehumanization of those who are made in God's image. And so while that is not the main point of the Exodus, that is certainly part of the truth of the Exodus, that God will ultimately redeem his people from their spiritual slavery, but now historically he is redeeming them from their physical oppression, and that Christians and the church should be a people who hate unjust oppression. Then Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You know, what's interesting is Moses asks two questions, right? He says, how will I know that this is legit? And then God says, you'll know that this is legit when you're worshiping me on the mountain. Right? So how, how do I know that this is actually going to happen? Well, when it happens, you'll know it, it happened. It's basically what God says. And then Moses says, okay, um, well, who should I say sent me? And then the Lord gives him this answer, I am who I am. He said, I, I am has sent me to you. The phrase I am is the first person singular of the Hebrew verb hayah, which means to be, right? So first person singular of to be is I am. The name Yahweh, 
You see it in your Old Testament, at least if you have the ESV, it's, it's translated as Lord in all caps. That's the covenant name Yahweh. But the Hebrew word Yahweh is the third person singular of this same verb. So Hayah in the first person singular means I am. Hayah in the third person singular, which would technically mean he is, that's the name Yahweh. The name Yahweh is the Hebrew word he is. Once again, the apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us what this ultimately means. Pastor Kevin read it in our call to worship. Pastor Mike spoke on it some this morning in our Bible class, New Testament Bible class. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells the Jewish leadership that his words are eternal life. And they say, well, you know, there are people before you who believed in the word of God and they died. So what's your answer to that? And Jesus says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus does this all throughout John's gospel where he takes that I am saying, not only in this instance, which is the most clear, but also when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the vine, I am the resurrection and the life. All of these I am sayings are pointing us back to Exodus chapter three. Jesus applies the divine name to himself. Before Abraham was, I am. The Greek phrase John uses, ego eimi, that's the same phrase in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, of Exodus 3.14. So if you read Exodus 3.14 in Hebrew, it'll say hayah, right? First person singular. If you read in Greek, he says ego eimi. That's exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 8. Ego eimi, I am. The Jewish leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying. That's why in verse 59, Pastor Kevin read that their immediate response is that they picked up stones to throw at him. Why are they so offended at this? Because Jesus is saying to the most intelligent, most faithful Jews of the first century, I'm Yahweh. I'm the one who led you out of Egypt, Jude verse five. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham was looking for me, and he said, Abraham saw me, and he rejoiced. You read in the Torah, you read the law, you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you read all these Old Testament stories, Jesus is saying, I wrote them. I spoke it. I did it. It's me. I am. Well, to them, that's blasphemy. They have two choices. To be faithful to God. They have two choices. Either Jesus is a liar and the right thing for them to do is kill him. Or Jesus is who he says he is. And the right thing to do is worship him. Well, we know what they did. John clued us in on this already, didn't he? In John chapter 1, when he used creation language, Genesis 1 language, to reveal the origin of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and everything was created through him. Nothing was created apart from him. In him is life, and this life was the light of men. Don't miss that. What is the first thing that God says in Genesis 1? Let there be light. John says, in the beginning is the word and the word is the light. There's not much room for other interpretation here, right? Can we agree on that? John is saying, Jesus created everything. Jesus is the creator God. 
He's Yahweh. He's the eternal Son of God who created all things. He's the covenant God of Israel. Jesus is the one who has providentially ordered history. The plan of God from before the creation of the world has always only ever been to save his people through the gospel of Jesus. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. You know what's another way to say that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For every human who has ever lived, the way of salvation has only ever been hope in the promise of the death and resurrection of Christ. This is your only hope. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus. Moses gives us one more shadow here in this text when he writes that uh, Yahweh tells Moses to tell Pharaoh in verse 18, if you want to look at verse 18, he says, basically, you're going you're to get the elders, is what he says, verse 18, and they will listen to your voice And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, again, you're noticing Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh, that's he is in Hebrew. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. It's a three-day journey journey from where they are in Egypt to Mount Sinai. We see that later in Exodus uh, 19, that on the third day they arrived at Mount Sinai. And this three-day trek is but another sign on the road from Eden to Calvary. When Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection, he says this, Luke 24, 46 through 47, Jesus says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You know, it's never explicitly written in the Old Testament that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. There's no verse of the Old Testament that says that. So what business does Jesus have rebuking his disciples for not understanding his death and resurrection? What business does Jesus have saying, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead? The death of the Messiah and his resurrection on the third day is woven throughout the tapestry of the Old Testament. Exodus 3.18 that we just read is but another pericope where we can look back and see this foreshadow. Yahweh tells Moses that Israel will take a three-day sojourn to make a sacrifice on the third day and that that sacrifice on the third day will be worship to God. Jesus is the true Israel who made the three-day sojourn through death and hell to free us from our bondage to sin. And the sacrifice of Jesus is the ultimate worship of God. Now, through his death and resurrection, all who place their faith in Christ can truly worship God. The book of Hebrews says, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. This is a prime example of how we must train our eyes to see Jesus everywhere in our Bible. Don't overthink this one, guys. Don't let modernism dictate how you read the Bible. Whenever you see three days or third day in the Old Testament, it's pointing you to Jesus. Every single time. There is no such thing as coincidence. The Holy Spirit 
through these men, wrote this story. And this story is about the good news of Jesus. So whenever you see the third day, three days, anything, this is no coincidence. This is no happenstance. It is a Holy Spirit-inspired type that is preparing you for who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And so now as we take a step back from the text, we want to remind ourselves how intensely practical this narrative is. 1 Corinthians 1.10, we read, or, or 1 Corinthians 10.11, we read on the first week, says, now these things, it's talking about the Exodus, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the story of the burning bush is not merely a kid's Sunday school lesson for the purpose of gaining Bible knowledge. The story of the burning bush is not merely Jewish history. The story of the burning bush is not simply a Bible passage teaching us to have faith like Moses. This passage is not even just a puzzle like Ooh, how can we find Jesus in the text? Oh, good, we found it. We're smart. The point of Exodus chapter 3 is that God is keeping the Genesis 3.15 promise. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And it's easy for us to come in week in and week out and pick the text back up and go live our comfortable lives, you know, generally speaking, To think, well, okay, that's not really that revolutionary, right? Of course he's keeping his promise. This is happening to people who have been slaves for 400 years. Let's take a little bit of historical perspective on this. The United States of America has not existed as a nation for 400 years. So it would be like all of our history as America, as Americans, plus more, of just being enslaved and hearing nothing from God. Do you think at that point it's fair to ask, is God keeping his promise? The answer here is yes. God is keeping his promise. He's revealing himself. God is moving his redemptive program forward from the covenant with Abraham to the covenant with Israel. We know this is the case because Pastor Kevin mentioned it last week that Yahweh himself said, Abraham, I'm making this covenant with you. You're going to be enslaved. For 400 years. But that's not the end. And guess what happened? Abraham's family was enslaved for 400 years. And now the program is moving forward. There's a new covenant because it's the next step in redemptive history. Moses here is the chosen leader of God's people. He will lead them out of slavery and into the promised land. Church, Jesus is the true and better Moses. I want to be excruciatingly clear. The application of this sermon is not be like Moses. In this story, you're not Moses. You are the enslaved Israelite. Jesus is Moses. Jesus is the one, the appointed, chosen leader of God's people who leads us out of the slave market of our sin and into the promised land of eternal life. If you are not a Christian, your only hope of experiencing the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life is to place your faith in Jesus. The Reformed tradition has always defined faith in terms of the triad of knowledge, assent, and trust. The first component of faith is knowledge. You must know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You must acknowledge that you are a sinner who deserves the just wrath of the one true and holy God. You must know that Jesus died for your sins and that he resurrected on the third day. You need this knowledge, but this knowledge is not enough. You must also assent that these things are true. It is not enough to know the concepts of God's holiness, of your sinfulness, and of redemption in Christ. 
you must also assent to their validity. God really is holy. I really am a sinner. Jesus really is my only hope. But even assent is not enough. Knowledge, assent, and trust. You must place your trust, your faith, your hope in Jesus alone. And what does that mean? Very simply, that means this, that if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why shouldn't I condemn you to eternal conscious punishment in hell? That your answer must be nothing more and nothing less than Christ died for my sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But the meaning of Exodus 3 doesn't stop with our justification. Church, it certainly starts there, but it doesn't stop there. It was written for us, Paul says. Who's us? Who's the first person plural? The church. This was written for the ones on whom the end of the age has come. Okay, don't get confused. Let's not get any, into any weird left behind stuff here. The end of the age is the time period between when Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit came and when Jesus is coming again. That's the, that's the end of the age. So when Paul says this was written for us, for the ones on whom the end of the age has come, he's talking about the church for the last 2,000 years. So as we sojourn between our slavery to sin and the promised land of the new Jerusalem, we are following the true Moses, Jesus Christ. We are following the one who is both the true Israel and is also Yahweh himself. He is our shepherd. He is the word of God. He is God himself. He is the one who enables us to worship God through his sacrifice and resurrection on the third day. Look to Jesus. Every day, look to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Obey Jesus. My prayer this morning is that like I can't help but see all these Ford Transits all over the road now, that, that, that my, my hope for us is that you can't help but see Jesus all over your Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. And so in one last effort this morning for the rubber to meet the road, I want you to turn to the 23rd Psalm. Please take your Bible and turn to Psalm 23. We have seen from Exodus chapter 3 that Moses was a shepherd for a third of his life. For 40 years, he was a shepherd in obscurity as God prepared him to shepherd God's people. We have seen that Moses is a type pointing us forward to the good shepherd who is Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to close this sermon and I'm going to prepare us for the Eucharist by reading Psalm 23. And because the Holy Spirit gives us the eyes to see Christ, I'm going to read Psalm 23 as a Christian. Psalm 23, the Holy Spirit says this, a Psalm of David. Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus leads me beside still waters. Jesus restores my soul. Jesus leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Jesus is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Jesus prepared a table before me. Eucharist. In the presence of my enemies, he anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Jesus Christ forever. Let's pray, church.
Father, we ask now that you would shape our hearts by your word. We pray for any who are with us this morning who have not trusted in Jesus alone, that your Holy Spirit would bring resurrection to their dead hearts, that you will replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh that beats for your son Jesus. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our true shepherd and we ask as your sheep that you would enable us to persevere by your Holy Spirit to follow Jesus every day of our lives. Father, we know that Jesus is the one who is both simultaneously distinct from you and yet he's also of the same nature as you. Father, that he is truly God and that he is truly man, that in the beginning was the Word and he was with God and he was God, and that he became flesh and dwelt among us. Father, that your son, Jesus, the divine human, suffered and died for our sins, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. Father, we ask that at Christ Community Church we would have a culture of evangelism and a culture of discipleship because of the good news of Jesus. That we would teach our kids to love and follow Jesus. That we would share the gospel with our neighbors and our family and our friends so that they might follow Jesus. Father, we ask now that you would bless your church as we dine at your table. We know Psalm 23 says that you have prepared this table for us and that this too is a signpost pointing us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, we ask that our hearts would rejoice this morning over your table. Bless us, we ask, for your glory and for our good. We pray, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.